You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. And Solaray, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me after a two-week uh, two break offline for, for the episode is David Leach um, from ITK. How are you? Giles, I'm well and it's uh, amazing to notice that the, the electricity markets kept going even while we've been offline. It's, it's, it's remarkable. And not only have we been offline, but um, half the coal fleet's been offline at various times over the past week. I think we had record low brown coal generation, um, I think it was last Saturday, and you wrote a very interesting piece that, talking about, I think, 11 different units um, offline over the whole week. And um, yeah, quite extraordinary. Tell us more. Well, Giles, you know, it's that uh, quiet time of the year uh, for demand-wise in Australia. Obviously not quite politically, but we won't go there. And a lot of the coal units seem to be offline for maintenance, getting ready for what's still expected to be a very worrying uh, March quarter in Victoria and New South Wales. I guess the good news was that prices still went very low in the middle of the day because uh, total wind and solar penetration uh, generation is now up to over 30 terawatt hours, which represents something like uh, 17% of the Australian uh, market. That's when you include the, the rooftop solar as well. So... So for the most part, the system's actually coping very well, and uh, there's still, in my, in our view, ITK's view, quite a lot of growth to come from some of these new wind projects that are, that are starting up, and and some of the solar projects are still ramping up. Absolutely, and we've certainly seen some volatile pricing, haven't we? Um, over in Queensland, we've had sort of you know dips into negative negative prices for for extended periods, and in South Australia, um, poor old Tail and Bend Solar Farm for one, I think, has been switched on or switched off probably almost like every second day, as it's uh, required to under its contract. Um, can't go negative, but um... so, so, Charles, there are a couple of points about that worth making. First, firstly, in, in Queensland, as you mentioned, it's seen a lot of uh, midday zero prices and negative prices. And that's just one of the state's main and most modern coal generators, Cogan Creek, 750 megawatts offline. That's scheduled to come back online at the end of this month, more or less as the Cooper's Gap wind farm continues to ramp up. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, and you, you can't get uh, export much more power out of Queensland than they're exporting at the moment it's because of the transmission line constraints. Uh, and so that's going to be an interesting situation that, that traders will have to keep an eye on. Um, um, uh, more more um, uh, broadly, I think the problems of Taylor Bend and a number of the other solar farms uh, get to the, what I think should be one of the overarching things that the uh, policy people should think about, provided you're not letting the market sort it all out for itself. And that is what to do with the excess of solar spilled energy during the day. Do you rely on the market to just make storage people come in and, and pick up that gap? Or, or do you have to have some kind of a plan? Because we've got so much solar energy potential, but clearly if you put too much in and you don't do anything with it, it's all just going to get spilled. 
Well, it's going to be really interesting in a um, month or so. Um, is it a month or is it two months when um, CleanCo, this new government-owned generator, this so-called clean generator, starts operating in Queensland? Um, it's going to be interesting because they're going to have Wife and Ho pumped hydro um, storage um, under their wings. And um, you've written before how Wife and Ho is actually quite little used, and it was really interesting to see in the um, a very extended period of negative prices a couple of weeks ago. Um, at some stages, it didn't switch on at all. All. It said it was rather too full, but um, but that sort of raised a few eyebrows. So it's, it's going to be really interesting to see um, to what extent that is used in in favour of the renewables, because you rather suspect that it's used to support the coal um, business right now. I agree with that. I mean, it might have been full during the day when solar prices were low, but there's no reason why they couldn't have emptied it out at night when the, when the prices in Queensland uh, and in New South Wales and in Victoria are going sky high at the moment. So electricity prices overall are up. And there does seem to be plenty of arbitrage for... It's not just, um, uh, um, you know, you've got to build a new pumped hydro plant. All the capex for that thing is, is spent there. All they've got to do is make sure that the price is high enough to cover the pumping cost. And in theory theory they could be making money but anyway we, as you say we'll we'll see how that develops once it's run by a new owner and of course look um the these the sort of issues are not the only problem um facing wind and solar farms one of the biggest issues this year and we've reported on it and we've talked about it quite a lot have been marginal loss factors now there's been um this has caught a lot of people by surprise and it's caught a lot of other people sort of flat-footed particularly some of those wind farms which have been operating for 10 or 15 years and thought they were okay so you've seen a lot of wind and solar farms downgraded a lot of calls for changes, a lot of disagreement about whether it should be changed and to what it should be changed. And this week, a group of 20 investors representing about $11 billion worth of investment, a potential another $20 billion worth of investment, some serious players, including Macquarie, um, Germany's Energy, um, some of the big names in the renewables like NeoN and Baywire and um, ESCO, etc., have gotten together to lobby for an interim measure, which they're calling an average loss factor rather than a marginal loss factor. And I'm not going to go into that right now because I think this our next interview, which I did earlier this week, um, explains it all. It's with Rob Grant, who some of you may remember as the former chief executive of Pacific Hydro. He is chairing this rather unique in the clean energy industry, the clean energy in industry investor group. And here's what he had to say. Robert Grant, um, you're the chair of the Clean Energy Investor Group and um, also with John Lang, um, one of the major investors in Australia's renewable energy industry. Thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thank you, Giles. Nice to be with you. You've been in the industry a long time. You're a former head of Pacific Hydro. Um, is this the biggest, um, one of the biggest issues facing um, Australia at the moment, Australian renewable energy industry, this issue about so-called marginal loss factors? Uh, look, it's one of the many issues that we've had to deal with over the years and the, the history of the renewable energy industry in Australia, but I would certainly put it up there as the most important issue since the RET review that was undertaken in 2014 in terms of its impact on future investment in the renewable energy sector in Australia. Yeah, and I guess the added frustration is that the cost of renewables since then has actually come down quite significantly. So it's a wonderful time to invest in these renewables. But what you're facing, the problem you're facing, now let's get this clear. So marginal loss factors, we have written quite a lot about it. It's dominated the news recently. It's basically the amount of energy that a um, is credited to a 
wind and solar farm and it may only be say 80 or 90 percent i mean normally you'd expect it to be around about you know all of the energy generated from wind or solar farm depending on where they are located in the grid but a lot of them have been wound down quite significantly recently and it's all about an issue of the pricing of transmission is that right uh that's right Giles. look we have inherited and uh you know the mlf methodology has served us very well since the deregulation of the power market in the 1990s. So the MLF methodology, the marginal loss factor methodology for pricing uh, and setting merit order, if you like, in the in the bid stack for generation um, was designed around the physical system as we had it at the time of deregulation, which is a very much a hub and spoke model. Uh, it, it, it survived a little bit of penetration of renewables um, you know, through the 2000s. But what has happened with this very substantial build-out over the last uh, three to five years, and particularly in the last uh, two years particularly, is that the MLF methodology is no longer fit for purpose to manage a very distributed network of uh, generation. And it's certainly um, uh, for zero marginal cost generation particularly, which is, cha which is chasing high resource intensive areas, uh, not not sending the right signal to put generation into those areas with the highest wind or the highest solar intensity. So, no, sorry, yeah, no, um, so a lot of the critics of, um, of, of marginal loss factors and the renewable energy industry say that the industry should have known because you've all built in the same place, so you should have well expected to be downgraded over time. But you actually argue that that's not the case, and you give the example of the Chalicombe Hills Wind Farm, which is one of the ones that you were involved in, I think, uh, 15 years ago. Tell, 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 us, tell us what's happened there. Yeah, I think that's that's right. There's, you know, the group, the Clean Energy Investor Group, is is twenty uh, institutional investors across the NEM. It comprises about seventy two power stations, six and a half gigawatts of generation, and eleven eleven billion dollars of investment. Now, the majority of that has come relatively recently, but there are many assets in there which we, as you say, developed and built um, over ten over a decade ago, and. Something like Chalicombe Hills, for example, has been operating quite happily on an MLF close to one for probably, you know, 12 years. And then along comes another couple of projects uh, alongside it, which is a good thing because it's helping to decarbonise Australia and it's helping to push down wholesale electricity prices. But as an owner of that asset, you can see these new assets, these new projects being built next to you. You understand the impact of uh, new assets coming uh, on the, your your own marginal loss factor, but you can do nothing about it. You can't hedge it. Uh, and in some cases, and or has been the case recently with the sort of lack of transparency that's available in seeing what's coming um, onto the AEMO list for connections um, and a lack of transparency on how the, the model actually functions, um, you know, virtually impossible to forecast the impact on your financial performance of, of old assets, let alone... Uh, new assets that have, uh, that, that have more recently come simultaneously onto the grid. So it is a problem for all uh, existing generators. It is a problem for all future generators. And it's a problem right across the spectrum of whatever type of technology we deploy, whether it's renewables or solar, uh, renewables or uh, thermal, or even you know um, any other class of uh, new generation we mm. seek to build around a distributed network. 
And, and you argue that um, it's probably caused the decline in value of about $1 billion across that whole portfolio. Is that right? Um, including, I think there's been some, a few specific write-downs. I think John Lang announced today, a month or so ago that it was writing down $67 million from the value of a couple of projects. Um, but you argue that's about $1 billion lost in value. And this, in turn, is actually causing reinvestors to completely rethink their their, their their exposure to Australia. And John Lang, I think, has said quite specifically it was not going to invest further until it had a bit more clarity about the way these rules will be designed. Yeah, look, it's important, and it's important that, that this new investor class, because historically there's been you know, the traditional, um, uh, the big three, the Gen Taylors, and then a, a number of IPPs like, Pacific Hydro, but really over the last few years, as the cost curve for generation and, and renewables has come down, there's been a very large increase in the number of, of investors in absolute terms, and that's helping uh, with their lower cost of equity produce you know, very significant drops in wholesale energy prices and very significant drops in the prices which are bid into these state um, reverse auctions. The ability to um, understand and manage wholesale energy risk is, you know, quite normal. We have a very deep and mature um, energy market that's been operating for 20 years, and investors will take a view on that either through uh, long-term power purchase agreements with some merchant risk at the end, or even, you know, taking merchant risk up front and being able to hedge that through the the various mechanisms that exist in the both primary and secondary energy markets. But, you know, what's occurring now with the MLF with this large uh, increase in new generation is that it's difficult to forecast. The uh, the year-on-year -year volatility of the MLF is so large um, and is, is large and unhedgeable that investors are saying, well, uh, particularly institutional investors who are not necessarily wedded to just renewables, they're saying, well, that volatility at best will require an increase in risk premiums to be added to um, their investment hurdles or at worst, just an investment strike. So. Um, as you say, in the case of John Lang, they've publicly said that they will um, uh, halt, with, halt, halt their uh, new investments in the market until this issue is sorted out. So, you know, we're advocating as part of the current rule change process that's going through AEMC, um, a position that will help future investment certainty through reduction of volatility in the MLF. Well, why don't you explain exactly how that is done then? Because you're, you're, you're talking about a system that goes from nodal pricing to what you describe as average pricing. Um, what is that exactly and how does it help? Um, look, we're, still, look, we're still advocating um, the, current, the current MLF methodology um, you know, works on regional, regional nodes. Um, and in, in setting transmission pricing, you have, every, you have options at one end of the spectrum to create sort of absolute certainty, which would be something like allocating a loss factor at the same time as you get your connection agreement. It doesn't move, it remains static for the life of the asset, which would be great for investors, but not great for market efficiency. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got um, absolute accuracy, which is sort of instantaneous marginal, um, instantaneous uh, loss factor pricing, which would be a bit like five-minute energy trading. Um, again, that gives very high accuracy and economic efficiency, but in uh, but we would be too complicated to be able to hedge and manage from a from an investor point of view. So, MLF has sit, has sort of sat somewhere in the middle of that spectrum, um, but the volatility associated with it, we believe, is too high, and it can be amended 
to a, rather than being a marginal factor on a a, a, um, a node, being an, an average loss factor across all of the generators and loads that are on that on that node. And really, what it's doing is the averaging is is actually more more closely aligned to the actual loss factors that occur uh, from that from each of the generators that are on that um, on that node. So the practical effect is that if you're if your MLF is currently say 0.85, that under a uh, under an MLF it's 0.85, that under a, an average it would go to 0.93, which is halfway between 0.85 and one, which is unity. And so it still provides a locational signal, which is important for the AEMC. Uh, it provides a reduction in volatility, which helps investors be able to better forecast and price the impact of. Um, of MLF on their revenues, and it doesn't sort of cause any. It's not. It's a, it's a no regrets policy. It's a no regrets change on the way to whatever the ultimate solution is here that will be probably dealt with through the upcoming Kogadi process or the ESB process. That's meant to be looking at how to make the AEMO's ISP come to life over the over the next uh, generation. over the long term. So, so you'd like this to be in place. Yeah, so you'd like this to be in place, say, for the next sort of four, five, or six years to make sure that that wind and solar investment is made. Because as you make the point, um, we've got a lot of coal generators um, either looking and being quite specific about um, about retiring or or possibly in danger of retiring early. So we actually need that wind and solar investment. We can't really wait five or six years until we see the next round. That's correct, and you've got state governments running reverse auctions. So the Queensland Four Hundred um, ACT just recently announced something. So to enable them to maintain the low prices that they've been able to achieve in those reverse auctions, and then more generally across the wholesale price that we've seen, over, you know, wholesale prices are the only thing in the power market that actually have been reducing over the last few years, and that's directly as a consequence of uh, this investor group coming to the market with their lower cost of equity or the lowest cost of equity that we're currently seeing globally and investing and competing against each other. Um, you know, and this is a relative, the MLF is a reasonably easy issue to fix. It's just uh, because of the volatility of an unpredictability of it and inability to hedge it. Investors say, well, you know, until that's, until that's dealt with, we'll just uh, hold our powder dry. So it's, um, it's important for, for those uh, reasons, but yeah, say if you're looking in New South Wales, which even though it doesn't have reverse auctions coming up, it's got the largest problem in managing, you know, thermal generation coming off in the near term um, uh, with Liddell. So that, that capacity needs to be replaced and it needs to be replaced mm -hmm. efficiently. And so with this average pricing mod model that um, that you're proposing as an interim measure, you mentioned that some with quite low um, marginal loss factors get upgraded to an average of, say, 0.93 rather than 0.85. Does that mean that others who are probably closer to one also get get downgraded to, to meet as well? Um, and, and if that's the case, how do they feel about that? Um, well, the thing is that uh, there will be... Uh, no, if if you're below one, you'll still you'll still move closer to one. So there is a the the, the average is actually a, a better into a, a better in um, approximation of the actual losses. So I mean, the, the actual loss incurred by the over the transmission system is still paid for by the generator. That's you know that's what we're saying. We're not seeking to change the way that um, change the way that the generators have to pay for getting their energy to the market. So. No, there won't be any for any, for anybody who happens to be over one. Yes, there will be a 
movement to, back towards one, but they're, they're very, particularly from a generation point of view, they're very few and far between. Mm. Um, so maybe some of the large thermal generators are sitting right on a load center, uh, may experience a small downgrade, but as, as we said earlier, most of them are looking at being decommissioned anyway over the, over the short term. Okay. And you mentioned over the medium term. You mentioned earlier that the um, having an investor group like this brought together is really quite unusual in the Australian renewable energy industry. In fact, it's possibly the first time. Now that you actually have all got together, um, what other issues have you got on your plate while you're while you're meeting and agreeing on things? If, um, because there's um, there seems to be plenty of issues. Um, I guess pushing through the um, ISP to make sure that there's enough enough transmission investment um, there and. Um, I guess there's been other issues um, arising which have affected uh, wind and solar farms more recently too. Uh, well, look, I mean, this group is, I mean, the CEC still does a, a great job at, at uh, covering all the issues that are relevant for the, for the industry. This group has got together because it's um, so acute and needs to be dealt with immediately um, that it felt that it should come together as a, as a single issue um, group. But you're right. I mean, there are a number of issues around Kogadi you know, and, the, and the design of the system under which the new transmission networks, particularly, will be will be built. Um, you, you know, the the issue for Australia replacing generation that's going to be retired over the coming decades is not really the generation per se. I mean, yes, there's intermittency that will be dealt with through storage, whether it's pumped hydro or, or batteries, but uh, or gas, but. Um, the, the major issue is how we go about redesigning the network to um, efficiently accommodate this new generation fleet. And um, that's being discussed in Kogadi. There's a discussion paper out by the ESB currently about how the ISP comes to life. So all manner of three-letter acronyms to, to talk about this very big <laughs> issue of how... Uh, you know how, how we transform from this very thermally based hub and spoke model that we've inherited uh, and served us very well for a, for a period of time to the to the new system, which will be you know fully distributed uh, with very different sorts of generation profiles. Um, but look, I, as I say, we're, we're, the CEC is doing a great job in, in managing uh, that broader context, and we're we're working closely with them on this issue and and probably some of those other ones in the future. And so just with the MLS, then how quickly do you need to see this resolved? Uh, so the um, AEMC is currently doing a rule review process, which uh, will result in a draft determination on Thursday. Uh, over the last six weeks to two months, we've been conducting a, an advocacy and awareness raising program around the state governments and had good a good hearing from them all, both ministers and their departments. Um, as well as the AMC to explain to them why you know, having this investor group is is beneficial to customers. You know, we believe that this investor group, with their lower cost of equity compared to say the the, the uh, traditional gen tailors, probably saves consumers in the order of hundred to hundred and twenty five dollars a year um, per customer. So it's a it's a significant saving, uh, and that's just a direct translation between cost of equity, um, LCOE or long run marginal cost, which they require then to meet their hurdles and then onto wholesale prices. So, and, and that, uh, that's about a 30% component of any residential electricity bill. So there is a direct link there. Uh, we've made that case to, to government and to AMC and we hope that on Thursday when they release their draft determination, there'll be 
um, positive consideration to doing more analysis on the ALF and uh, and looking forward to be this interim step that's no regrets uh, on this journey to uh, Kogadi and, and where we get to at the ISP. Well, look forward with interest to seeing what the AMC come up with, whether they agree to this change of acronym and uh, from the MLF to the ALF and um, see what happens from there. <laughs> um, Rob, um, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Pleasure, Giles. Nice to talk. Thank you. And that was Robert Grant. He's the chair of the Clean Energy Investor Group. David, um, interesting stuff. Uh, marginal loss factors, average loss factors. I guess the fear is that uh, if the status quo continues, and that's not going to encourage any new investment. And I guess what it points to is the lack of planning that uh, we've known about for a long time and that you've pointed out, all these renewables coming online. And for some years, it's been the law. Yes, Giles. Uh, you know what I'm going to say. You, you, I'm, I'm going to say that we passed a law in, uh, in well, two, a couple of laws of acts of parliament to have, you know, essentially 20% renewable energy. That was the target, and we're going to get more than that. And you would have thought that the people would understand that all of that wasn't going to be located right on, uh, right on, uh, you know, say where Bayswater or some other coal generator is. That we were going to need some new transmission lines, and new transmission was going to take time to build, seven years, and therefore you needed to start even before that Act of Parliament was passed. But here we are, and if you were to listen to our, one of our interviews recently uh, with Transgrid, uh, uh, y y you'd know that, in fact, the, the, the projects are running behind time. And I think of most concern, I guess, to the guys building Snowy 2, which ought to be the federal government. And, I'm not going to talk about politics very much, but um, is that the line, the essential big upgrade from Snowy to Melbourne isn't scheduled to happen until the late 2020. So, I mean, that, that, that you know, that's that's a long time to wait. That's longer than if we've got to wait for the for the submarines in South Australia, which admittedly they aren't due to the 2050s, but we're not going there either. <laughs> yeah, well, look, I mean, look, 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 there are some efforts to try and get some sort of long-term planning um, together. We've got um, AEMO with this integrated system plan. We've got the AMC and the um, Energy Security Board, I should say, rather, um, looking at a rewrite of the national market rules. We've got the AMC playing around with various um, sort of um, policies such as... Um, uh, and this is another problem. As, uh, to, to add to the actual physical problems of not having enough transmission access, and in New South Wales, the transmission access still takes forever to negotiate, I guess because it's so tight. But we've also got a huge amount of bodies and a huge amount of actual rule changes that have already been agreed to with other ones that may yet be agreed to. And all of these things just raise the cost of capital very substantially for anyone thinking of investing in the sector. That's without mentioning the new... Um, um, uh, program that, that the federal government is running to incentivise new uh, uh, dispatchable or firming generation. Now, it may be that we need some of that, but it would have been nice to have had a study or two done as a preliminary to work out how much of that we need uh, and when we might need it, rather than just making uh, a request for the investment on the, on the basis of I thought it was a good idea at the time. Yes, well, I, I do remember when they sort of when they unveiled that plan and they um, they called for expressions of interest by um, within about a month or so of unveiling it last September or October. Um, said we have to get it out by the second quarter of um, of two thousand nineteen. Of course, they had no expectation of being re-elected, and um, here we are, six months almost getting onto four or five months after the election, and still nothing. But um, look, so, so Giles, the, the absolute priority when you think about it, you've got two competing priorities. One is to build new firming generation, and and one is to build transmission. And I will tell you that uh, right here and now, 
that eight out of 10 people would say that uh, who know anything about the topic, uh, and I represent seven of those eight people, uh, uh, would say, tell you that new transmission is a much more important thing than new therming generation right now, particularly Snowy 2 has already been built and there's plenty of coal generation, gas generation around for, for, for years to come, never mind uh, behind the metre batteries and in front of the metre batteries, which can be built at a moment's notice. What we need is the transmission first and everything else second. Um, we may get some progress because finally we will get a COAG meeting. It's going to be held in Perth on November the 22nd. We don't have an agenda yet. We probably won't get an agenda until about a week before. It'll be interesting to see what Mr Taylor does um, agree or want to talk about with the state energy ministers, um, most of whom are getting pretty impa impatient for exactly the reasons you've just outlined and because they've got you know, renewable energy targets, or at least in the case of New South Wales, because of its retiring generators needs, which far outweigh the ambition of the federal government. And um, I was struck uh, this week, um, a um, hydrogen conference in, in South Australia, and you know you had the Premier, li liberal, a Liberal state Premier and a Liberal state um, um, energy minister talking about 100% renewable hydrogen economy. Um, you know, they see hydrogen, look, I don't know whether hydrogen's ever gonna beat electric vehicles on the roads, but certainly hydrogen could be really valuable, um, not just as an addition for storage for electricity, but also long-term storage to, possibly an export industry if they can get over the transport costs or even underpin low-cost um, manufacturing in Australia. But um, really gratifying, I think, with all of everything else that we hear, and particularly from New York and some of the grandstanding there, but little, little in moves, but at least people talking about it in Australia, and I, I just think that's at least a bit gratifying. Yes, that's that's right. Uh, we, we've had uh, Matt Canavan going around Asia apparently talking about that uh, uh, look, I think it, what, what you can say about the, the, South, the South Australian government is that they've, uh, they, they, the direction is clear and, they, they remain, they, and it's easy for them. They don't have a coal industry uh, and they have lots of renewable, industry, uh, renewable energy already. So it, it is easier for them to, make, to go down this path. But this clear commitment is, is very good for certainty and confidence. Everyone knows where they're going. I contrast that with New South Wales in particular. Uh, without wanting to throw in any any stones, but the uncertainty around policy here, where you have our the New South Wales Energy Minister saying, depending on who his audience, he says exactly what the audience wants to wants to hear at the Clean Energy Council summit. He spoke glowingly about renewable energy and making it an easy place, New South Wales. Uh, talking to 2GB and, and Ray Hadley, and which is the coal lobby, essentially, he tells them how wonderful coal electricity is. I mean, it's impossible if you don't have a clear direction to get a clear policy. And I'll, I'll just leave it leave it there. Yeah. I want to go on and talk very briefly, Giles, about a couple of corporate events. You mentioned hydrogen, but we also saw Matt Cannon -Brook, uh, uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks, uh, with his large amount of private equity, uh, saying he's going to be investing in the um, uh, the Northern Territory export project to to Singapore, yeah. uh, which is uh, uh, that's one. And then uh, we also saw Federation Asset Management, a new private uh, equity fund, taking eighteen percent stake in publicly listed WinLab, uh, run by our old friend uh, Roger Price, who's probably the best spotter of wind farms uh, in the country, uh, wind resources. So a few things going on. Absolutely, yeah. And I'm just going to sort of make one point too about South Australia. You mentioned the fact that they don't have a coal industry and they do have lots of renewable energy resources, but that didn't actually happen by accident. Um, they did used to have a coal industry and they didn't have very many renewable energy resources, but they've changed that around. So that just shows what governments can do to sort of um, change the field. And um, of course, it's uh, much easier now going forward. David, look, I think that's about a wrap for today. And um, well, well, I just want to mention one other thing, Giles, sorry. Uh, and that's the development of offshore wind. Now, that's something that has 
hasn't happened in Australia much, but uh, there's been some dramatic cost reductions, which uh, you've written up or Renew Economy has covered very well uh, in the UK, showing how the costs have more than halved it. So when you're thinking in Australia, that, that's got two implications. One, we've got a lot of coastline, obviously, but we've also got a very good on-land wind resource, so it's arguably less important. But when you think about the places that we're thinking about exporting this hydrogen to, Japan and Asia, uh, or exporting electricity via DC cable, it does raise in my mind what the offshore wind potential for those things. So one of the risks you have uh, when you're developing these industries, which take you know eight and 10 years to build the projects, is what everyone else is going to be doing in the meantime and the competing technologies. So just think that's something to keep an eye on. Absolutely, yes. And and, and you're quite right. There were first of all quite fascinating reductions in offshore wind in the UK. Um, it's going to be about six gigawatts, I think, of new developments. They're basically subsidy free because the prices have come in below the current wholesale price and at less than half the price of the new nuclear plant which will start in about 10 years time so a couple of things to think about on many different levels there look um, I should take the opportunity to thank our sponsors Evergen and Solaray Energy thank you for your ongoing support it's very valuable it brings us to the table to the microphone and out onto the airwaves and um, thanks everyone for listening David thank you very much and uh, we'll talk again next week pleasure pleasure to be here again Charles uh, cheers bye for now Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. With technology developed in Australia with the CSIRO, Evergen customers can maximise the return on their sustainable energy investment. Visit evergen.com.au and take control of your energy bills. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.